Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are here with a good buddy of mine, Chad Griffiths. Chad and I have actually known each other for a few years, reached out uh, on Instagram. That's actually how we got connected. Uh, he was he was writing an article for Forbes, actually. So I'm gonna, we're going to have to talk about that a little bit. That's pretty cool. Um, so Chad, was, uh, Chad and I got connected, obviously, because he was one of the more forward-thinking brokers. We were both on Instagram really before anybody else was. Uh, he's been doing industrial real estate up in Canada for 15 years and is not only a broker, but he's also an investor. So he's got a wealth of knowledge when it comes to industrial real estate, which is obviously a hot topic and has been probably for the past five years, uh, just because of the, the growth of e-commerce and how everything is shifting to this online uh, kind of area where you've got to have a whole lot of logistics uh, and distribution facilities to, to, you know, facilitate that. So Chad, brief introduction, man, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into, into real estate. Well, thanks so much for having me on Tyler. As you mentioned, uh, I've been a fan of yours before we even met. So it's, uh, it's an honor of mine to continue our friendship going on and to, to be on your show. So thanks again for the introduction on that. Uh, so I started in, in real estate in 2004. I actually did uh, residential for the first year uh, and quickly realized that that just wasn't for me. Uh, so I sought out a commercial real estate brokerage to join. Uh, and as luck would have it, turned out that that office that I joined was uh, predominantly involved in industrial real estate. So it was almost by accident that I got into industrial real estate. Uh, that was about 15 years ago now. And, and I'm sure glad that I did uh, because I've, I've spent my entire career uh, at the same brokerage uh, that I've that have been that uh, since 2005 now uh, and along the way I've become a partner in my firm uh, and then I've also started investing in property so I bought my first industrial property in 2000 and end of 2014 so roughly 2015 uh, and then I've slowly just added to that as well so with a handful of partners we're up to about 12 million dollars in assets under management so I love talking about industrial real estate uh, so I'm excited to chat with you more about it on this call. Yeah, that's awesome, man. One thing that I didn't mention is, you know, because Chad is is forward thinking, he's also got a YouTube channel where he is teaching you guys how to invest in industrial real estate and everything you need to know about industrial real estate. So definitely check out uh, his YouTube channel. Chad, is it under your name? Is it just Chad Griffiths? Yeah, I, I put up, it gives you that, that long winded email yeah. or, or ending at the end of YouTube. So I did set one up. It's Chad Griffiths, CRE. Uh, is Perfect. the one on it. Uh, interestingly about that, as there's very few people talking about industrial real estate on YouTube, uh, which is one of the like reasons no that one. I <laughs> like nobody. So if you just search industrial real estate, there's a good chance that one of my videos will show up because I'm really the only person talking about it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's that's such a great niche too, because I mean, people are curious about industrial real estate and, and there's no content out there. I mean, that's why I started creating content on commercial real estate. Right. Like there's almost nothing out there. There's only a, like if you if you take the whole industry as a whole, there's really only a handful of us that are doing anything like that. So interesting. I didn't know that you started off in residential real estate. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I guess I'd go after you go back even a few years before that. So I, I was working at a restaurant uh, part time and I was going to, uh, to business school. Uh, and after my first year of business school, the restaurant offered me a management position. Uh, and I was I was young, I was dumb, I wasn't really thinking uh, long term on it. So I actually <laughs> dropped out of college, uh, took the job as a manager, and I, I hated it. 
Uh, there's elements that I liked about working in the restaurant, but I hated managing a bunch of teenagers. Uh, so I, I did that for about a year uh, and then kind of just messed around. I, I ended up bartending for a couple of years. Uh, and in that time, I started buying and selling houses with a few friends and really got a taste for real estate at that time, just on 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 the long term potential for it on how you could really build wealth in that. Uh, so I wanted to see how I could explore that as a potential career. So I didn't have to be a bartender when I was 50, trying to think long term out on this. And uh, real estate was just the natural extension. So got my license. Uh, all I knew at the time was was residential from buying and selling a few houses. So I slid into residential real estate. Uh, I did that for a year and, and actually did reasonably well at it. Uh, I hustled. I, I worked as hard as I could. Uh, that, in, that was in 2004. And there wasn't a lot of technology at the time. So I set up a, a website with a pretty good uh, URL that was memorable uh, and really tried getting that online traction. So I, I actually did like reasonably well for that year in residential but just really didn't like it. Uh, so it's similar to like being a, a manager at a restaurant. I just couldn't see myself doing that long term. Uh, so I asked uh, my uncle, who was a prominent architect in the city at the time, uh, if he could help me transition into commercial. Uh, and he set up a couple of interviews. Uh, one of them, uh, so I had two interviews on one day. Uh, the first interview that I had uh, went so well that I ended up missing the second meeting. And I took a job uh, at that commercial brokerage that wow, morning. that's awesome. Uh, and I've been at that same brokerage ever since. Man, that's a great story. I started off uh, in commercial real estate. Most people are not that lucky. They, they actually start off in residential and transition into commercial. And uh, it's funny how different of a personality type that side of real estate requires, right? I mean, it's a totally different sale. I mean, in, in commercial, industrial, you know, you're dealing with a very logical, straightforward, you know, the, either the numbers work and the location works or it doesn't. Uh, there's almost little to no emotion involved in it. And I'm just not a good emotional seller. I'm like, hey, the numbers work, let's, let's get it going. So uh, that makes complete sense as to why you would transition out of it too. Tell us a little bit about uh, industrial. I mean, when you when you moved over to this brokerage, how how and why industrial? Oh, great question. So I, I had I had this big dream that I'd be selling office towers. Uh, when when I thought of commercial real estate at the time, yeah, don't that's we all right? Mind. Yeah, we all we all just think about being on the top floor of uh, of an office tower downtown, and and that's what I legitimately thought I'd be working at. Uh, but the the brokerage that I went into was was predominantly in, into industrial, so uh, almost just pure accident, I stumbled into industrial. Uh, but I, I recognized uh, very early on that it had huge potential, uh, because it was it's a very steady, stable, boring business, and boring by the standpoint that it doesn't have the same big ups and downs. And there's there's nothing to uh, personify that more than what we just went through this past year, where people were working from home and some retail stores were closed down like that. That was a huge roller coaster for the office and retail markets, whereas industrial did pretty steady. So I, I looked at industrial as something that I could really build out uh, and have some longevity with, get to know it really well and become an expert in it. And part of the reason that that I started a YouTube channel uh, was because there was very little available. Uh, that was 2005 that I joined that brokerage and I wanted to learn as much as I could about industrial, but there is surprisingly little available. And fast forward to today and it's still a, a problem. Uh, 
I think industrial real estate is fascinating. If you, if you actually look at it as a, as a core, there is a study done uh, a year ago or so that, that indicated there's about 20 billion square feet worth of industrial real estate in North America. That's with a B, 20 billion. Uh, and the aggregate value wow. of all that, that industrial real estate is over 1.5 trillion. So it's a massive industry. It's a massive contributor to GDP and just local, state, a countrywide uh, a GDP. It is a huge driver of the economy. So I, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm also just surprised at how little is available for people that, that want to get into it, like I did 15 years ago, uh, or or people that just want to learn more about it, whether they're a company that that wants to lease space or they're, they have something coming up, or it's an investor. I, it's It's just surprisingly how little information is available. So it's it's been a labor of love of mine over the last 15 years, studying it, getting to know it as, as well as I could uh, so that I was not just an advisor to my clients, but then I could invest in it myself. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because uh, industrial real estate has for the longest time been seen as the least sexy side <laughs> of commercial real estate, right? Like, you know, most most industrial brokers don't wear suits. They're they're wearing, you know, jeans, boots, collared shirts, because you're walking through these dirty industrial properties with your clients. And they're not the flashy buildings that are going to be downtown with a giant sign on it. Right. But industrial is I mean, it's 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 one of the sleeper. It's a sleeper. I mean, you've got cap rates that are rivaling rivaling multifamily in some respects. So Will you kind of dive into what industrial properties are and kind of just give us an overview of the types of projects you're working on on a daily basis? Yeah, and, and to talk to your point, there's uh, industrial guys often get the nickname of being uh, dirty booters or dirty shoes. Yeah. Uh, yep. we're, we're walking through construction sites or uh, just dirty buildings all the time. Uh, so I, 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 that, that's a very good point on that. And I, I joke about that sometimes too. Right now I'm wearing jeans. I'm kind of business on top and uh, I work on the bottom. Yeah, uh, same I, here, I, man. I've I'm, always... Always, I'm always wearing <laughs> jeans. I'm in sneakers right now. It's funny, like the office guys, they're always dressed to the nines. They're wearing the nines suits but yeah not me <laughs> yeah I, I haven't worn a tie in in a while now it's it's pretty rare for that uh but so on the industrial side I I typically uh tell people that the most important thing to do at the beginning is to recognize that there are subcategories of industrial and they're fundamentally different from one another uh so quite often when when you hear industrial real estate whether it's in the news or or you know a broker just putting on a market report uh, indicating what the vacancies are uh they'll they'll just group everything industrial under that one category but there's some subcategories that are that are completely different from one another so the first thing that i suggest is um break down industrial into three main categories. Uh, the first is manufacturing properties. Uh, second is warehousing or distribution centers. And then the third is flex properties. There could also be some additional smaller kind of tertiary uh, categories like self-storage or miscellaneous ones like that. But the three main ones are that manufacturing, warehousing, and flex. So the, to break it down, you'll, you'll see why they're, they're so different uh, once we explain a little bit more. So manufacturing is pretty straightforward. It's, it's a property that's designed 
for things to be manufactured, assembled, produced. Uh, if you could think of like a big factory, that's what comes to mind for a lot of people when they think of industrial. It's just like a big factory where things are made. Uh, and that's that's the manufacturing side. Uh, the next biggest category would be warehousing. And that's the one that's becoming a lot more prominent in today's news uh, as we hear about fulfillment centers, like the big e-commerce giants. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, Nashville is similar to my market. You probably had Amazon popping up all over. Uh, Amazon's got a, a couple million square feet uh, in our market, whereas five years ago they had zero. Uh, that's all warehousing distribution centers. And the closest comparison that I could give for, for one of those, if you haven't been in one of those centers, is actually just going to a Costco or a Home Depot. Uh, those are really big warehouses as well. They're just in a retail location, uh, but it's the same principle. It's 24, 28 foot ceilings. Uh, there's racking all the way up it. Uh, there's loading doors for stuff to come in and stuff to go out. Uh, it's the same principle with a lot of these warehousing buildings. They just don't have that retail location. Uh, and then the third category is flex properties. And that's that's kind of a catch-all for all the properties that don't neatly fit into one of those uh, two categories. Or it could even just be a property that's conducive for both types of uses. Uh, we are seeing some buildings uh, being built now that could accommodate various types of uses. Uh, or it could just mean a property that uh, is perhaps a showroom space. If you picture like a big car dealership uh, that might be located in an industrial area, uh, but it has a big showroom in it, that'd be a flex building. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't think about, you know, Costco, Target, Walmart, Home Depot. You know, these, these groups are, they're all in warehouses. I mean, if you, if you actually check out uh, the building when you're walking through it, you know, you, you're usually just head down, you know, going to whatever aisle you're looking for. But if you look up, I mean, you can see the rafters, right? Like it, it is, a, is it an industrial building? You've got typically just a vinyl over concrete uh, type of floor. They've got loading docks. I mean, it's just a well-lit, air-conditioned warehouse is all it is. So we are live with Chad Griffiths. If, you're, if you have any questions about industrial real estate, he started off as a broker. He's moving into he's moved into investments uh, years ago, back in 2014, 2015. Uh, feel free to let us know in the live chat. We'll, we'll get around to those as well. So, Chad, talk to us about uh, the transition from a commercial real estate broker to an investor. What was that process like? I, I would say it was, it was a very natural progression. And, and I, I think for anybody that is a broker or involved in commercial real estate in any capacity, whether it's it's a lawyer or, or a, an appraiser or banker, I think it's a natural progression, actually. And I think that that should almost be a goal uh, of, of any professional is to get into investing because we have access to information uh, that isn't ready, readily available in the public. So we've got this deep knowledge of the industry. We've got a deep knowledge of, of what demand is, is for any particular property. And with some reasonable confidence, you can you can extrapolate out into the future uh, to see what that property is going to be be like 10, 15 years down the road. So for me, it was always a goal. I always wanted to be an investor in, in, in commercial real estate. Uh, it, it took a while uh, before I had the financial resources uh, and the comfort to go and do it. Uh, the first property that I that I bought was uh, with with my business partner. Uh, we we bought it ourselves. We didn't have outside capital. We put our own money into it. 
Uh, and that just took some time before we had the money to do it. Uh, but I, I think that that really should be a goal, providing there's not a conflict uh, with with any of the clients, providing there's not a conflict with the company that you work for. Uh, if you can do that uh, w without creating any tension or any issues there, I think that should be a goal of, of any professional uh, to, to invest in something that you deeply understand. Oh, I, I don't have your audio there, Tyler. Good catch. <laughs> so the uh, I muted myself so that I didn't make any noises while you were talking. But the the first building that I ever bought was a, an office building that a client of mine had under contract, and they were trying to buy it and couldn't get their financing together. And I eventually just said, you know, I, I had assigned it to another client, and then he also couldn't get his financing together. So I said, you know what, let's buy it. Um, but yeah, I think that's very important. You want to make sure that you're not conflicting yourself out. Uh, when you're working with clients as a broker, right? Uh, you know, because we work with a number of investors and I do value add investments. So I'm very clear with my clients on the front end that we're not going to compete with them on any deals. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing for them to know is like, look, you can't take on everything. So yeah, I may get this deal over here, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to take every single deal that comes across my desk. It's physically, it's not physically possible, uh, which is, uh, which is, yeah, it's a good and bad thing, right? You want to, you want to uh, give your clients some good deals too. So I think, I think that's very important. Um, Chad, we've got a couple of questions coming in uh, from the, from the audience here. This is from Evan. How would you, a 23 year old get financing for an industrial building next year? I'll have about two years of tax returns, making over a hundred thousand a year. Could you get a 30-year loan? Could you get a 15-year loan? How does that look? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, the longest loan that I've ever got was was amortized over 25 years, but it was a five-year uh, term on it. Uh, that's a great question. If you did want to lock in for 15 years, uh, money's never been cheaper than it is right now. Uh, so if you felt confident that you were going to hold a property for that that entire term, then I, I think locking in right now is a, a great time to do it. Uh, I'm always nervous of a term that long on what your penalty is to break it uh, if you ever do have to get out of that property uh, maybe you can port it uh, maybe there's uh, options that you have to to buy it out if you want uh, i've i've personally just always been uh, a guy that's confident and comfortable with a three to five year term i've even done one year terms on on mortgages so uh the, to, that was the second part to the question there is uh 15 to 30 year if you're confident that you can hold a property that long uh and if you don't you've got some means to pay out that mortgage without a big uh penalty then by all means this is a, probably the lowest we'll see interest rates Although I've been saying that for uh, for ten years now, so I mean, yeah, maybe right. we're in a, a low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. Uh, but to your first point, there, I, I'm a big believer uh, in the first property that you get is to have skin in the game yourself. Uh, I know that there's uh, guys out there who have done it with uh, just raising complete outside capital uh and they just came along uh in the in a management position where they oversaw the asset and, and did all the day-to-day -day management uh, i i think the best way to prove to investors that you've got that sustainability and you've got the the ability to actually see a project through and deliver returns is to actually uh, get your hands dirty. So I, I would say if you're making a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year and you've got the tax returns to do it, I suspect that there'll be lenders that line up to lend you money, providing you're willing to put some in. Uh, I, I think it's, it's very risky in your first property to not have skin in the game yourself. 
Uh, it's possible. I know, I know Tyler's talked about uh, ways that, that he's done it. Uh, but even in, in, and Tyler, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but even your first deal, you still uh, rolled your commissions into it. So you still had skin in the game in that, in that first one that you did. So I would say uh, the first thing I'd recommend is uh, just have some, have some money that you're willing to personally contribute into it. And if you are willing to contribute into it, I think you'll find guys that want to come along for the ride as financial partners very easily. But if you don't have any money that you want to put in yourself, it becomes very, very difficult to raise capital. You're on mute again. I, I, I must be. Uh, I must be leaving. Man, I keep. Here. <laughs> I, I swear, I'm, I'm clicking the unmute button. Sorry, I keep doing that. Man, I, I need to. I need to get a little bit better about that. Um, <laughs> it never happens. Uh, yeah. So I, I did roll my commission in on that first deal, and I signed on the loan. Right. Like you, you've got to be willing to show your investors that you are going to put your money where your mouth is. Because at the end of the day, if you're just trying to sponsor the deal and put no capital in, you know, why would an investor really trust you? Um, but Evan, what I would say is, um, you know, I would go out and find a partner that's done it before, right? I mean, find somebody that has uh, invested in industrial real estate before and, and partner with them. I mean, that's what I did when I first got my start in commercial real estate. I worked with a boutique development firm for four and a half years before I went off and did my own thing. And because of that, I was able to learn everything from the ground up, uh, which was really cool, right? Like I got to see office, retail, industrial, uh, multifamily development, you know, single family home development every and everything in between. So that's what I would do is, is go find somebody in your market that's uh, been there, done that and see if you can kind of go put a project together with them. Uh, we've got another one coming in here from Philip. Uh, I actually met Philip out in Chattanooga and we were looking at our building uh, a couple of weeks ago. He says, I'm looking at warehouse space and the loans are all portfolio five or 10 year adjustable with a call option. If the interest rates rise dramatically over the next few years and cap rates stay the same, is it more likely that commercial property values will fall or rental rates rise? That's a great question. So we were actually talking about that a little bit on the uh, podcast uh, last night for the, the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Andy was talking about that because as, as you know, inflation is about to start going up, interest rates will start going up. But what a lot of people are saying right now is that the economy is poised to grow so much that real estate will likely just go up in value, uh, which is really interesting to see. Rental rates will continue to rise. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're in a market like Nashville, you definitely know that and you can believe that. Um, so, you know, that that's my take on it. I mean, Chad, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this this is literally a question that I ask pretty much every every smart person that I know. So I, that, that that's that's a great question that that you're asking uh, as well. So the probably the best answer that I've gotten from this is from uh, Peter Lineman, who's one of the top minds in commercial real estate. He was a professor at Wharton. Uh, he's he's been an advisor to a number of, of huge, huge firms. So I asked him about that. And, and he said that he's expecting there to be asset value inflation as opposed to consumer inflation that's kind of his forecast for this year is that he thinks we'll just see uh inflation in 
in properties. Uh, and that, that's kind of a function of there's just a lot of money in the system right now. When there's a lot of money chasing a few things, then we will just see those prices go up. Uh, but the the interesting thing is that it's really hard to determine what impact those interest rates will have on cap rates. The easy thing to say is that, yeah, I mean, if interest rates go up, we'll have to see cap rates go up correspondingly to make them look attractive, which will have a, a downward pressure on prices. Uh, that's that's an easy easy way to look at it, but that's also looking at that entire equation in a vacuum, uh, and it, it never occurs in a neat, tidy vacuum like that, like a theoretical uh, outlook that if if interest rates rise, we see property values go down. It's it, it it seems tempting to think of that, but there's just so many other moving parts. And and I, Tyler, I think you make a really good point on that. Is if we do see uh, prices go up, if we see rent goes up, uh, then that could have that offsetting uh, effect of cap rates going up as well, where the property values stay the same. I, I think it's purely speculative at this point. I, I, I have really, really no idea what to think of all of this. Uh, if we were to go back a year, uh, well, let's say we go back 13 months to like March of 2020, I was pretty pessimistic at that time. I thought the whole economy was going to unravel. Uh, I thought that this could be a, a, a long lasting change. But what I failed to take into account was just the government's propensity to spend any amount of money that they had to, to keep the wheels from falling off. So I, I, I didn't account for that uh, in kind of how I was trying to build out my model for this. Uh, but there's so many forces that we just can't, can't keep into uh, consideration all the time. Uh, but if we, like, I think the REIT in, in, industry is a good one to look at this, at this as well. So NARI, which is uh, the Industry Association for REITs, uh, came into effect the same year that REITs were enacted into leg legislation in 1960. So REITs have actually been around for 60 some years now. Is my math right on that? Uh, 70 years. Uh, so REITs have been around for a long time. So you could appreciate over that that duration, there's been a ton of ups and downs in interest rates uh, as, as we went through crazy things. Uh, I was really young in the 80s, but I remember my parents having an interest rate on their on their mortgage for their house that was 18%. So the interest rates have been on a crazy roller coaster for that, that time. And uh, cap rates uh, have often had a, a sticker shock effect when we do see a big movement in an interest rate. Cap rates do tend to have uh, a dramatic uh, uh, effect on it shortly thereafter, but it does also tend to stabilize. Uh, and even in the 15 years that I've been doing this, uh, interest rates have, have been volatile as well. But I've found that cap rates, for the most part, operate within a very tight operating band. Uh, and I'm assuming this is pretty similar in, in your market too, Tyler, but uh, I've seen that cap rates have been kind of in that 6% for like a really, really good quality property uh, with a good tenant, perhaps a little bit lower for some outliers, but 6% for a really good tenant to 8.5% if there's some risk with the property. And again, you might find some a little bit higher than that, but that operating band of 6 to 8.5% has been pretty steady for the last 15 years that I've been in the business. Yeah, that 6 to 8% number is typically a pretty good range. Nashville has started getting into the fours, which is just oh. absolutely wild. Because, I mean, if you if you look at, like, you know, the country's distribution chain, I mean, it, within a day's drive, you can reach 80% of the world's population, of the world's population. You can reach 80% of America's population in a day's drive, right? So it's just, it's becoming, fast becoming this, this distribution uh, and logistics hub. Uh, loving all these questions. Anatole's jumping in. Thanks for this. Uh, 
You're absolutely welcome, man. It's only time, man. Uh, how difficult was it when you got started and what did it take or what did you do to get your first deal? I think that's that's a great question. I mean, let's tell us about your first deal. Yeah, that, that is a fantastic question. So I, I the answer that I always give uh, to that is it, it sucked. Like it, it really did suck. Uh, I came from residential <laughs> where, where, where I did like I did reasonably well. Uh, and I had some money saved up because I had flipped a few houses with some friends. Uh, and I burned through all of that money. Like I, I was living uh, on debt uh, after the first year or so in the business, uh, because it, it's tough. Like I, I, I think commercial real estate is a lot harder of an industry to break into. But I also think that it's a lot better of an industry once you've gone through that pain period at the beginning. Uh, so it, it it was tough. I, I never sugarcoat it for people. I, I, I think that there's nothing else that I would rather have spent the last 15 years of my career doing than than industrial real estate. I, I am so glad that I took that decision to do it. But I also tell people that those first three years really sucked. It really uh, is. It's funny. Everybody it, says that too. It's it's always three years. The first year is the worst. It is the yep. worst because you have no connections. I mean, I probably didn't make a dollar for six months, which a lot of people can't do. I mean, it was, I was working no. a job. I was still working as a waiter. I mean, it's it's tough. People don't people underestimate that. They really do. Uh, and the same thing. If if I wouldn't have had some money saved aside uh, from just being pretty fortunate on a couple of investments, and I lived very lean. Like I, I was driving an old car. I was I was I think I was living with a friend in like, in like a two bedroom apartment that was really cheap. Like I was living very frugally. Uh, and, and yeah, the first first year was really tough. Uh, to the question though, on, on the first deal, uh, it was actually a friend of mine. Uh, I ended up uh, leasing him a small bay. He had a uh, he had a detailing shop, uh, just detailing cars, and we ended up doing I think it was like a two thousand square foot industrial bay, and we did a three year lease. Uh, I think my commission on that was. 1800 maybe gross so i had to split that with uh, with my brokerage <laughs> and then i had to pay tax on it i remember i remember looking at that uh that commission check at the yeah after all the all the deductions on it and i was like holy smokes this is this is gonna be a lot harder of a challenge than i first thought uh and, and it was tough like it, it was a grind every day just trying to uh to drum up business uh i was young i i when i got into industrial uh at the brokerage i was 25 uh, i really didn't have a ton of of business connections uh so it, it, it was tough it was a tough slog and and i think even people that do have a lot of connections coming into it i think even they underestimate how tough it is to just convince people that you are capable of doing a doing a deal uh and then entrusting you with with a huge decision on their end like they they're either entering into a lease that they're committing to for several years or they could be spending hundreds or millions of do dollars uh, on investment you've got to convince them that you're capable of doing it and that just takes time whether you have a hundred connections or zero connections it's the same struggle of convincing people that you are capable of handling their needs yeah that's i mean it's it's not easy my my first deal was basically relocating a tenant in a shopping center that we were already leasing so and, and i'd spent six months knocking on doors trying to find somebody else to do a deal with um, that one just kind of ended up falling out of the sky. Tell us about your first investment. What was what was that like? I mean, how did you how did you find it? How did you decide it was a good deal? I mean, what what did that look like? 
Yeah, so uh, that was the end of 2014. I, I don't remember if we closed at the end of 14 or early 15. My, my memory is a bit hazy on when the timing actually was, but let, let's just say 2014. So I had actually been looking probably for a solid year before that. And with it being the, I had some familiarity with, with residential investing, uh, but I really wanted to make sure that I didn't screw up that first one that I bought uh, because I, I, I figured that'd be the foundation of, telling other people that I had a successful track record. Uh, obviously, I wanted to maintain my own capital and maximize my return on that. So I, I was very careful. And and on a side note for that, I typically give that same advice to people as well. Uh, if it's your first industrial property, uh, be prepared to look at a dozen, maybe 20 properties uh, as potentials before you find one that you're comfortable with. Uh, and that goes back to just even understanding industrial real estate at a deep level. You, you really have to have a, a firm understanding of, of what industrial real estate is and what demand is and what companies look for. And the only way to do that is to just be looking at a ton of properties. So I probably spent the majority of 2014 uh, going through like mini underwriting exercises of looking at a property that was for sale, building out a pro forma on what I thought revenue could be how I could potentially get any increases in rents, what my expenses would be, uh, even projecting out like a five or a 10 year uh, uh, NOI and then figuring out what I thought a cap rate would be. Like I, I would go through a full uh, process of figuring out what those were. Uh, and, and as luck would have it, uh, one of my clients had a, a small bay. So still own this bay to this day. Uh, it was a 2,500 square foot bay and he wanted us to sell or lease it. And we ended up finding a tenant for it. Uh, we did a five-year lease with a company that uh, sold kitchen equipment. Uh, and he agreed to do the lease. And then we asked him at that point, uh, would you consider selling it? And he said, I still want to sell it. Uh, so we made him an offer for it. Uh, and by that point, I had gotten to know that building quite well because I would showed it a, a handful of times. We, le we did the negotiations on the lease uh, and he agreed to, to sell it to us. So that was uh, yeah end of 2014 and I uh, still have that property. We're onto our second tenant right now in there that the kitchen company moved out. Uh, now we have a machine shop in there and we just extended them for another two years. So it's, it's been a great little bay for us. And that's uh, the, the first one you're, you're, you're pretty fond of. Uh, and the, 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 this one's no different. I, I really like this, this little property. We've since added a lot bigger properties to the portfolio, uh, but I still have a special place in my heart for that little guy. Yeah. Cause that first one is what got it all started. Right. I mean, I'm actually under yep. contract in, in like literally eight days I'm closing, I'm selling the first property I ever bought and it's kind of bittersweet, man. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's not the best investment in our portfolio by far. Cause it was the first one I did and I'm not nearly as good as, as I am now uh, when I bought it. Um, but it was a great first project. We made a pretty good return on it. Um, and now it's, you know, it's time to give it to somebody else so that they can, they can do the same thing that, so, so that what you were saying actually kind of leads into, uh, Evan's follow-up question. Um, he says he, he does have about $200,000 saved up to put towards a building. What size would be good to start at? I mean, I, I would imagine obviously it's going to depend on if he wants to bring investors on or not, but you started off with a, a 2,500 square foot, you know, industrial condo. Is that something you would recommend? 
Yeah, as long as the numbers make sense, I wouldn't be as focused on the on the size as as much as just optimizing your investment. So I don't think you necessarily need to to de- deploy all two hundred thousand of that to get the right uh, investment. You might be able to deploy half of that and save the other hundred thousand for the next project. I, I think starting small uh, would would be the the best thing that I could recommend uh, because you'll learn so many things during that process and your risk will be mitigated. Uh, so the first one that we bought was was roughly 400 grand. Uh, and if memory serves, we put about 60 grand down and we had to we had to separate some utilities in the space and we had to add a new HVAC unit. Uh, so I think we put another 30 into it uh, as part of our deal with the seller. So we were roughly 90 grand uh, into it. Uh, and uh, with having a $310,000 mortgage uh, and the rent that we were collecting, it was cash flowing. So we were cash flowing from day one. We were paying down uh, principal on our on our mortgage. Uh, and that was just a really good investment. We've, we learned a, a lot about just the process of, of how you need to set up your accounting, how you're setting up a, a corporation, if you're doing it by yourself or if you're doing a, a GPLP, which we've done that uh, now as well. Uh, I think starting small would be would be more advisable uh, than necessarily having to deploy all two hundred thousand of that. Uh, that two hundred thousand will make you very financeable from a lending standpoint, uh, especially if you're not going to use it all. Uh, but I think if you were to look for uh, an industrial condominium uh, or a, a small industrial property, uh, and you're in that half million to call it three quarters of a million. And uh, I, I think that that'd be a fantastic investment for you to to really get a sense of what industrial real estate can do as an awesome asset class, uh, but also ensuring that you don't have substantial risk in that first property. So th- the, the main thing I would say, though, is just make sure that you're getting a property that when you do your pro forma and you figure out what your financing package is going to look like, you know that you're going to be cash flowing day one, I think cash flow is imperative uh, as an owner. Uh, make sure you're cash flowing and then start doing some projections on what does it look like five years down the road after you hold it for five years and you're paying down your principal and you're taking advantage of some tax deductions uh, and perhaps you have some rental escalations in there uh, or you think you can do some value add and, and increase the rents at some point. Build yourself out a, a five or 10 year model on how you think that that could look and as long as the the numbers are, are checking out, uh, and, and we can go we can go deeper uh, as as well, Tyler, into IRR and NP, NPV. Uh, but from like a very basic standpoint, just what's your cash on cash return? Uh, and as as long as that's checking out over a, however long you're projecting to hold that property for, I would say get the right property as opposed to focusing too much on the size. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that. Um... You know, well, first off, getting to getting to what Chad was saying about underwriting every Wednesday at 530 p.m. Central Standard, we're going live and underwriting a, you know, tomorrow we're doing a medical office building. Last week we did a single tenant net property. If you want to learn how to underwrite these deals and how to determine those returns, we're doing those live. Feel free to come join us. Um, but, you know, when you know, I think Chad's totally right when he's talking about don't put the whole 200 grand into one property. I mean, the, the great thing about real estate is that you can use leverage, you can partner with other people, you can use their capital, you can diversify, right? What if you put 50 grand into four properties? You know, if, if one of those properties goes belly up, you still have three more uh, to, to, to carry everything. 
as opposed to you know the one property that you've got 200 grand in uh, that you know I mean look re- investing in real estate's risky right there's there's no investment that doesn't have some form of inherent risk uh, let's see here Vic is jumping in with a question what would you do starting out with 1.5 million saved I would imagine Chad you'd probably say pretty much the same thing just scaled up to 1.5 million right yeah, I, I, and, and even before we get to that answer, I, I want to add one thing on there too, Tyler, because you touched on a really good point earlier about the value of, of partners. And I, I want to echo that because I think having a partner does a few things. One is it helps you diversify the amount of money that, that you can spread out into different properties, but it also helps check your blind spots. And quite often as investors in, in real estate, you can become so emotionally attached to to a property or you can be attached to a tenant uh, that you you run the risk of losing that objectivity. Uh, so my partner that I own all my commercial real estate with, uh, my business partner as well, he's also a commercial real estate broker. Uh, we do a really good job of ba- bouncing ideas off each other on things that work or things that, that don't work or areas that we have to be concerned. And I would lose that wisdom that he has and that different lens that he sees things through uh, than, than I do. Uh, and th- that's invaluable to me as, as much as, as his capital has helped us grow our portfolio together, I rely on him heavily for the insight and vice versa. Uh, there's, there's areas that, that I have strengths in that, that we look at things differently. So I, to, to the last question there on, on how you would spend that 200 grand, I think if you were to take 50 grand and try and go and get a couple people that are in the business already, if you could find an appraiser, you could find a mortgage broker or a lawyer or an accountant or anyone that has some knowledge on, on business. And you could say to them, I've got 50 grand. Why don't we get a couple guys together uh, and we'll run this as a partnership. I think you're going to have a much better chance of long-term success uh, than just trying to go out undo it by yourself. And, and I that's, know you're a big believer in this too, Tyler. I was going to say that's, that's great advice. I mean, that's absolutely fire. It's so true, man. I, you know, you can go out and get other people who have complementary skill sets that know things that you don't, right? I, the, the, the like smallest amount of members that I have in any given deal is three. I don't own anything by my own. Because um, it doesn't make any sense to me, honestly. Like again, it's it's leverage is one of the most beautiful aspects of commercial real estate, and having partners is a form of leverage, right? Because if if I've got three people signing on the note, then that's three people who are jointly sharing in the risk of that debt, instead of it falling all one hundred percent on me. Um, that's mm-hmm. three people who can split the down payment. That's I mean, it's just there's three people who are going to be out talking and may run across a tenant that's perfect for the building. It just it exponentially increases your chances for success. So I think I think that's great advice, Chad. Yeah, and, and so to to get to the next question of, of the the guy that has a million and a half. I mean, you you already had some significant financial success. So I think the the biggest thing that I would do, and and I'm not a financial advisor, so I don't want to be given financial advice on it. But the biggest thing that I'd recommend, if you already have a million and a half, would be to make sure that you always protect your downside risk because you have a million and a half you're you're already well on your way to a to a comfortable retirement if you just put that into an industrial real estate investment trust you could make a four percent yield on that uh and you could you could make a comfortable return just on 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 a on a 
pretty consistent yield from a REIT. So I would say the, the biggest thing I, I'd recommend if I were in your shoes is to just make sure you protect that million and a half. So don't lose money, uh, kind of like the, the Warren Buffett yeah. uh, analogies, don't lose money. So I, I, I would say with that, uh, that money that you have, just be very prudent that everything you're spending on has a very low probability of that downside risk. And with industrial real estate, it's unfortunate uh, that inexperienced or investors that rush into it can experience significant downside risk because they just don't understand the asset that they're buying. So I, I would say uh, to you, you, you don't need to take the same risks as somebody that only has $25,000 to invest because the person that has 25000 is trying to build wealth to the level that you're already at. So I, I would say to you is to not take big risks that a smaller investor might, but instead to just be very focused on earning consistent returns and trying to eliminate or at least significantly reduce that downside risk. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, I mean, that's true. If you've got a million and a half dollars in cash, I mean, you're you're already on the way. Now, if you're making a million and a half dollars a year, then, you know, that your your risk profile should probably be a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, take take a third of that or take half of that and, and invest it. You know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't like do it at all. Now, if, if one and a half million is what you have set aside specifically for real estate, I, I would go out and just diversify that over a handful of deals. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. put put one hundred thousand dollars into 15 deals, uh, you know, go find deal sponsors, you know, general partners that are syndicating commercial real estate and throw it in with them because or, or, or take two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and do it. You know, and, and you could also diversify through funds, you could diversify through a REIT, you could go get your own property, you could invest in a syndication. I mean, there's four different ways you can invest in real estate right there. Uh, let's see. Vic also has a, a follow up question. Out of would you invest out of state or near your base location on your first deal if you know what you're doing? So he knows what he's doing. I think, and that my opinion may be completely different from Chad's. I think you invest where you're going to drive by every damn day, because especially for your first one, you're you're going to constantly be thinking about it. Typically, there's some work that needs to be done. Um, I, I didn't invest out of my area until this year and I've been in real estate for seven and a half years. I've found that there's plenty of opportunities that I'm very, very comfortable with in my neighborhood um, and in the neighborhoods that I like to invest in. So to me, you know, of course, now, like if we're talking about absolute net leases, it doesn't matter. You can, you can buy that in New York, you can buy it in California, you can buy it in Florida. It's going to be, you can buy it in Canada. It's going to be the same thing. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, but Chad, what's your, what's your thought on that? I, I couldn't agree with you more, Tyler. And, and I would add to it as well uh, that I, I think investing in your home market is is just the smartest thing that you can do with your capital. Unless you're a massive corporation that has the resources to put a local team on the ground and you've got access to considerable market information, I think one of the biggest advantages of investing in your hometown is that you just know that market really well. Uh, you're intimately familiar with it. You're probably following all the trends, reading the reports on what's happening with vacancy rates and absorption and what tenants are, are moving. You just have a much deeper knowledge of the market than you would if if you were to, so let's say you're in Nashville, if you were to, to go and buy a property in Chicago, Tyler, you're not going to know Chicago as well as, as Nashville. It's just impossible. And if you wanted to know the market in Chicago that well, then you're going to have to dilute the amount of energy you can put into knowing Nashville. So 
I think having that deep knowledge of your local market is a powerful, powerful tool. And the other reason that I, I'm a big proponent of investing in your market is that if you do have a vacancy come available uh, or, or an opportunity comes up that maybe somebody wants, wants to buy it off of you and you've got an opportunity to sell it, I think if you have the ability to know that property really well and 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 drive by it every day, like you said, and, and just know exactly what's going on in that property. I think you're just going to have that much more attention given to it. And you're also going to have the ability to pivot much faster. So I, I, this has happened with us. That one small bay that I mentioned to you, when that kitchen equipment company uh, left, we, we backfilled it very quickly. I, we might have had a month downtime where we just did a quick renovation for the guy. And we did that because we know the market really well and we're familiar with it. If I had that same investment in another city, I don't think it's, it's reasonable to expect that I would have been able to fill it as quickly just because I don't know it as well. So I, th I think that there's a big power in investing in your market so much so that I would, I would expect there to be a, a considerable risk premium attached to any property that I considered outside of the market, outside of my market. All things being equal, I'm going to invest 100 times out of 100 in my own market before I look somewhere else. Yep, same here. So uh, appreciate the questions, guys. These are great. Keep them coming in. Um, so Chad, Amazon has had a massive impact on the world of industrial real estate. Tell us about how that's looked over the last five to 10 years and what you think it's going to look like over the next over the next five to 10. Yeah, so I, I maybe we can even talk like even even broader than just Amazon. So I, I think Amazon's a good symbol of this e commerce movement on on things moving to moving away from that uh, bricks and mortar to more of a order online and have delivered. I uh, Amazon's kind of like the, the symbol for that whole thing. But I think we can talk much more broadly because every company has had to increase their their logistics uh, 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 infrastructure, kind of the supply chain, if you will. Products made somewhere, it's distributed, it's transported, it's stored in a warehouse, and then it's sent out. Every company has had to to adapt to that. So e-commerce has, has grown probably for the last 20 years, it's hit critical mass over the last year, as a number of stores were forced to close, uh, people still want to buy stuff. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Tyler, but I'm, I, I, my family has still bought the same amount of stuff over the last year as they did uh, the year before. Uh, we yep. just didn't do it in a store, it was ordered online, and we had it delivered. So we still like stuff. So there's there's been a big movement towards this e-commerce uh, construction, and and that goes back to differentiating industrial real estate into those subcategories. The manufacturing side, a manufacturing building is quite a bit different than a warehousing building or, or distribution center. These warehousing buildings are are designed for for one simple task: things come into it, those things are stored or repackaged or 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 boxed up into smaller packages, and then they're shipped out. They might stay in the warehouse for a year, they might stay in the warehouse for an hour. But the whole purpose of these facilities is that things come in and things go out. So it's it's fascinating seeing the massive increase in, in these facilities going up. Uh, the, that is, that's what's actually driving industrial real estate in almost every market in the world right now. And that, that's, that's I probably sound a bit repetitive on it, but that's, that's why I think it's so important to, to break industrial real estate into those subcategories. I'm in a market that's got a heavy oil and gas play. And with oil being down considerably over the last six years, our manufacturing side of industrial real estate has been under 
considerable pressure. But the the logistics, the warehousing side has been going through a boom. And I suspect that that's similar in markets all over the world. I, I know in North America, I, I study this pretty extensively in the major markets. Uh, if you look at a, like a market like Vancouver right now, Vancouver, uh, it's got the ocean on one side, it's got mountains on the other, it's landlocked everywhere. Their vacancy rate for industrial real estate right now is less than 1%, which is mind blowing that there's there's a market right now with less than 1% vacancy. Uh, and uh, uh, LA is uh, uh, 3%, New York is under 2%. Like some of these major port cities where, uh, where things are just coming in at a crazy pace, they're experiencing record low vacancy rates. And that's all driven by this e-commerce infrastructure that's had to get built up. So a term that uh, a lot of people are probably more familiar with now is, is that last mile delivery. And last mile delivery is a logistical term, uh, basically meant to imply it is the, it's, it's not a literal mile, it, it could be five miles, it could be a block, but it's the, the step in the supply chain where it goes from a from a warehouse or a store to the customer's door. That's what they consider last mile delivery. And there's been a race with all these big logistical companies to increase their infrastructure so that they can uh, more efficiently and more profitably get that product from the last mile. So last mile is, has been probably one of the biggest drivers of, of warehousing space and industrial real estate in general, but it also, uh, you can't neglect the entire supply chain and the importance of the entire supply chain. So whether it's something coming from China and it's landing in a port in, in, on the Western side or on the Eastern side, uh, then it makes its way by truck or train, uh, in every one of those steps along the way, there's going to be a warehouse or some building that's facilitating these products. So it's been, there's been a crazy growth in these areas to accommodate things transition, transitioning from retail to that, to all of us ordering stuff online and having it show up at your house, same day, sometimes in two hours, you can get stuff now. It's, it's unreal to, to see, you know, we were reading some of the statistics um, about, how much has has just gone on in the last year i mean it was like every hour there were 555 orders through grubhub for food <laughs> delivery and every hour 555 orders i mean everybody we're just moving to this online order delivery based society which is really interesting which means industrial real estate is going to have high demand i mean that's last mile delivery right there Think about that, how much how much demand there's going to be for, for that type of space. So, Chad, speaking of online, you got your presence uh, in, in commercial real estate really growing with your online presence, uh, with your online actions, right? I mean, you were blogging back before a lot of people. You, I mean, you inspired me to blog. And, and because of that, now we've got one of the top you know, blogs in commercial real estate. Talk to us about that and, and how that, uh, I mean, one, why did you do it and, and how did that impact your business? Yeah, I, I, I'm, similar, I'm sure it's similar to your story where uh, it has to be a labor of love for one thing. Uh, I think anybody can do something for a small period of time. Uh, like if if someone hated writing, but you that their boss said to them, you have to go and write a blog, they could probably do it for a little bit, but they're not going to thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I just really enjoyed writing. Uh, I, I don't know if that was just uh, uh, kind of a weird quirk that I have, uh, but what or a creative outlet that I needed to to express, but I just really enjoyed writing. So I started blogging uh, over five years ago. Uh, and I wrote a blog 
every single week. I didn't miss a single week for five years, which is crazy to think about. That's, That's over so 250. Long. So long, over 250 uh, posts that I wrote about on on commercial real estate, and it, we grew uh, a following on it. We had people that commented on it all the time, and it helped our website uh, just from an SEO standpoint because we had so much content out there when very little uh, was was being done to compete with us. Uh, so it. it I, first, I really enjoyed it. I think that that's the key for for doing things is if you're going to uh, try to do something, you have to have that long game in mind uh, that that doesn't happen easy. Uh, it doesn't happen quick. But if you're if you like doing it, and you can see yourself putting in that effort, you can you can see some results over time. Uh, funny enough, I actually just paused doing the blog. Uh, so after five years, every single week, I decided to take a break on it. Uh, and, and part of it was I, I want to explore YouTube more. Uh, I, I, I really want to see if I can put uh, more compelling videos out there. And I, I just only have so much time in the day. So uh, I just kind of made the decision that uh, five years was time to take a break. And I uh, still love that creativity side to it. So that's that's what's kind of pushing me over to try YouTube now. Man, I don't blame you one bit. We've been writing uh, a blog post every week. When the pandemic hit, I actually started off writing like three to five a week because I had nothing nothing else going on. So just built it up. Um, And now, I mean, we rank on the first page for like, I think if you type in commercial real estate investing, we're on the first page, which is crazy. Um, But I'm right there with you. This week, I haven't written one. And I'm like, man, it was supposed to go out today. I don't know. I'm clearly not going to get around to it now. You know, when am I going to write that and catch up? Because, uh, you know, that's it's a great way to teach people, um, you know, what's going on in the world of real real estate, right? Because there's not a whole lot of resources out there. So, you know, for for those that are watching, you know, what kind of... uh, like, where are you getting your data from? Like, what what news sources do you read? Who do you talk to, to to learn more about industrial real estate so you make these educated decisions? Yeah, great question. So I, I'm a member of uh, SIOR and CCIM, uh, and they both put out uh, regular publications. So they put out a print magazine, but they also put out uh, a lot of content on their website. Uh, so they, there's uh, either like a web article you could read or a, a quick podcast. CCIM has a good podcast now. Uh, so I'm pretty up to speed on all those. Uh, another industry organization that, that I've been a member at for years is uh, NAOP. Uh, it used to be an acronym. It used to stand for the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties. Uh, and they've since abandoned that acronym. And now they're just called the Commercial Real Estate Development Organization something like that anyways uh but their their whole focus is is on industrial real estate uh, or, or at least that's a major component of their focus so they also have a magazine uh that goes out and they put on a ton of seminars i, I probably sit on uh, through a, a webinar uh, one a month right now and they've put out some great ones on industrial real estate uh membership isn't crazy expensive uh and there's that that's an organization where i get way more value uh than what it costs so those would be the three main ones. Uh, there's there's seldom a week that goes by where I'm not sitting in on on a webinar on one of the three of them. Uh, and then I, I I try to read a lot. It's I, I probably read way more than I should, but uh, I read a lot of uh, competitor uh, reports. Uh, I listen to competitor uh, podcasts. Uh, CB has a has a great uh, podcast, probably the, the best do. one. The weekly uh, take. Yeah. 
yeah it's yeah it, it, it's really good uh so i i've, I've directed people to that one as well because I, I if you just want to sit through a, a quick 45 minute or, or 60 minute uh podcast and listen to what they're saying that's a fantastic one i read a ton of brokerage reports uh and then i i probably the website that i rely on a lot is uh globe street uh, it's just uh, globest.com uh, they they break down their news into uh, to different categories and and one they they cover industrial as, as one of them and they put out a lot of really good information. Uh, so if uh, I check on that one regularly, I, I probably uh, uh, check Globe Street a couple times a week just to see what they're putting out. Uh, but it, I I really do make a conscious effort to to stay on top of as much of this stuff as I can. Uh, even on like a, on a full nerd level, uh, I even have uh, subscriptions to a couple supply chain uh, magazines. So it's not necessarily directly tied to warehousing, but they do talk about a lot of stuff that directly ties to it. So I, I think it's you got to find sources that uh, that you can go back to often. Some cost money, some are free, but it's uh, it's just a consistency thing of of trying to stay on top of that as much as possible, as opposed to trying to drink from a water fountain get all that information in one sitting and try to remember it. I think it's much more effective to just con- consistently do it uh, and let that stuff sink in over time. Those are some great tips. I think, I think the CBRE's weekly take is such, it's such a well-produced podcast. Um, you know, uh, we're, I'm constantly reading the local news, right? Because there's, there's so mm-hmm. much that's getting announced. The business journal is actually a great, you know, if you're, if you're in the United States, I don't know if business journal is in Canada or not, but um, business journal is great. Uh, but for me, it's all podcasts, America's commercial real estate show with Michael bull. It's a pretty good one. If you want to get further into kind of the higher level, like real estate investment, trust hedge fund type of stuff, um, which is pretty interesting to see what they're doing. He also interviews, uh, the co-star guys all the time, you know, cause they, they've got some data. Um, ice is asking, how could you practice case studies to master the numbers for a new CRE agent? Uh, I that's a great question. I mean, what I would do is put yourself in the investor's shoes because the most frustrating thing as an investor dealing with an agent is an agent who has no idea what they're talking about when it comes to investments, right? Because I used to get bogged down all the time with new agents that would send me deals like, you need to buy this. This is great. And I would look at it and go, this isn't even remotely close to a deal. How did you think this was a deal? Um, so if you go through and just practice your underwriting and get really good and understand how an investor is going to look at it, then you can really pitch to your investors. When I, when I, I went through CCIM and I'm getting my designation hopefully this year, uh, but I learned how to underwrite through CCIM. They gave me all the spreadsheets and that the the I took I think it was 104 which is really the underwriting class and three months later I sold a 1.8 million dollar AT&T because I I went out found it fully underwrote it sent it to a client and he was like yes I will do that so that to me I was like wow that, that, that class paid for itself like 10 times over I think I think that's the best thing is to like just make a goal to underwrite a deal a day just go find anything. It doesn't even have to be what you think is a deal, but you know, you'll you'll very quickly learn what could and and could not be a deal. Chad, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, that's a really good point, and, and and congratulations on getting close to your uh, to your designation there. It's uh, yeah, thank I, you. I, I've had, I've had it for a number of years and it is, it's a great designation. So I uh, congrats on, on getting close to that. I, I, I agree with a lot of your points. I, I, I think one thing I would add to that is, uh, 
an underrated skill at the beginning of your career is establishing relationships with professionals. Uh, and and it, it comes organically over time. Like you'll just, you'll meet lawyers, you'll meet bankers, you'll meet appraisers. Uh, but if you make a focused effort at the beginning of your career to try and forge some relationships with those guys, uh, I, I think that that's a huge thing that you can do because they can fill in a lot of the gaps in your knowledge that you just don't know. Uh, you might not know what what closing costs are on, on what a, a lawyer's fees are going to be on a transaction or, or what design fees are going to be if they're redesigning a building. There, there's just so many holes in the knowledge that you just don't have at the beginning. So if you can, if you can meet a banker, an architect, a designer, a lawyer, uh, and strengthen those relationships early on, run ideas by them because they'll, they'll tell you what numbers you need to put in as, as inputs on there. Uh, and, and having them look at it like a, a mortgage broker is a perfect example because a mortgage broker will help you through that process. Uh, and, and you can make it a value add proposition for them by saying, you know, if you ever need some data, if you ever just want to have a comp on what happened on a, on a building next door, I, I'm your guy. Like, I, I want to be your resource for any market intelligence that you need. Uh, even if I don't know it, if you ask me what's happening on a property, I'll track it down and I'll get you that, that comp. I think that's a very powerful thing that you could offer uh, to that banker. And, and again, that goes for anyone, uh, a, a lawyer, an accountant, if they need to have some some data, if you're their guy and they know they can count on them, they'll return that favor and, and help you out along the way as well. So I would say just try and establish those relationships as early as you can and use them as, as a sounding board. Uh, like if, if you got to know an accountant well and uh, and you would help them out with something or they knew that they could count on you for help. And you just said, Hey, I got this quick pro forma. I want to run by you just to make sure my numbers are okay. Would you mind taking a quick look? I, I suspect that they would say yes. And if they said no, I'd find another accountant to talk to uh, because the, 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 one of the most powerful things that I've done in my career is, is establishing a lot of those relationships. And, and I just, I've, I've got guys that I can contact and get that information if I need it. And, the corollary to that is they can do likewise with me. Uh, so th that'd be the biggest recommendation that I'd make when you're going through that underwriting process is don't try and do it in, in, in isolation, just all by yourself until you're comfortable with it. Uh, but like Tyler said, the more you do and the, and, and just the more comfortable you get with it over time, the easier it is. But at that, at that beginning stage, don't underestimate the value of just having people help you along in that process. There's something to be said too for being a beginner and being able to ask those questions, right? Like there's nothing wrong with it. Everybody's is willing to to help you and talk through that, right? Because you're you're new to it. And and those attorneys, those bankers, you know, whoever the the CPAs, like they want to build a relationship with you because eventually you'll be bringing them business too, hopefully, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, the better you understand it, the the better off everybody's going to be. I mean, you know, I can't sit down and ask those questions usually, right? Like, it'd be weird if you sat down with me and it's seven and a half years into the business. And I was like, what's a cap rate? I mean, <laughs> I can't really ask those questions, but like there's there's a beauty in being new into the business. You can ask any question and people are just like, oh, well, yeah, this is exactly what it is. So feel free to meet with those people and ask all those questions because there are no dumb questions. I mean, seriously, you got You got to learn it somehow. Um I love this. Philip is asking probably a, a very interesting question. Can you walk me through how some four cap deals make sense for buyers? After leverage, I think that's a very low rate of return with no cash flow while taking on a lot of risk. I regularly ask listing agents to explain to me how four caps make sense. 
no good answers except people are paying it. Um, Philip, that's it's funny because like I'm laughing because it's it's painfully true how often you come across that. Like I'll yell at my team sometimes, like how the hell are they justifying this deal? How does this make any sense? So like, you know, so I've got two analysts on the team, and all they do is underwrite full time. And I'm like, y'all need to figure out how to make this make sense because somebody's making this make sense, and we need to figure out why. Um, it, it, the the real answer is. It, sometimes some people just have so much money that they have to deploy and getting a four cap is better than, than having it sit in a bank account. There are other ways, uh, you know, maybe the cash flow is not all that great, um, but they, they see a high upside in the appreciation. They're just parking the money for 10 years. Um, also, you know, we'll be talking about this in the live stream. Well, it's not gonna be live tomorrow cause I'm going to be in Chattanooga, but in the underwriting video tomorrow night, we will be talking about, cost segregation studies that is one of the ways that they can actually boost those returns to make it make sense right uh, because a cost segregation study increases it's basically accelerated depreciation and so you can write off more on your taxes shelter more income and you actually end up making a little bit more the other thing and the only way that i could see anybody justifying it is through a 1031 exchange right like you've got a massive amount of money you don't want to take a, a penalty on paying taxes to the government um, through capital gains and so you're going to 1031 exchange into another property and four cap is better than nothing at all it's definitely better than paying uh 20 plus in capital gains um and it's probably a better cash flow even though it's a four cap it's probably better cash flow than the last property you sold to 1031 exchange just because you had parked money there for so long, you snowballed it. And now you're 1031ing it into another property. I mean, Chad, what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on forecasts? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a great question, and and I, I guess my answer to that would be it's purely speculative. I, I think the buyers that are willing to pay those cap rates are speculating that the market is just going to appreciate at a faster rate than their short-term cash flow considerations. And I think if we were to look at the stock market as an example, we could look at Tesla stock. Tesla stock makes absolutely no sense at its valuation. Like it's traded at a, at a multiple. <laughs> Even Elon says it. the the owner president of the company says that, but it's trading at such an astronomical PE that it doesn't make any sense from a rational, logical investor standpoint. But the people that are willing to buy stock at that at that level are are aren't buying it for today's value. They're buying it for what they think it's going to be worth in two or three years. Uh, and and I don't know where uh, the the guy who asked the question is from, uh, but I, I I'm guessing if he had the opportunity to, to buy a property ten years ago at a four cap. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that his, that would have actually been a pretty smart decision. Uh, yeah, he's, in a, he's in Chattanooga, so that's probably very okay. true. Yeah, so I, but, but that that comes with a considerable amount of risk. I'm not a four cap buyer myself. I, I would not be buying a property at four cap because I think there's so Absolutely much risk not. that comes with that. Uh, and and to his point, uh, like if you put leverage on there, then then you're negative cash flowing. Like there, there's just no the math does not work that you're actually going to come out ahead on that. And I'm not a negative cash flow buyer. Uh, but there, to your point uh, as well is there's there's some buyers that that can buy with cash. Uh, whether they're doing a 1031, whether they just have a bunch of money sitting on the side, if they think the market's going to be worth more in five years than it is right now, they're not even making a, a logical decision based on cash flow or a cap rate. They're just purely speculating that the market's going to go up. I'm not one of those uh, investors myself, but I, I can understand why people do it. That's what investors in LA do. I mean, they buy on three 
four caps. I mean, it's it's incredibly low, but they're they know that they're going to lose money for a few years, and then they'll sell it to the next guy. And that's just to me, gosh, investing in real estate like that is just, I, I can't imagine it. I mean, I guess maybe if you're in LA, it works, but gosh, I can't see that ever working in Nashville. I would I would never do it. Um, well, Chad. This has been a great conversation about industrial real estate. If the audience wants to get in touch with you or if they want to check out anything, your, your blog, your YouTube channel, uh, where do they go? Uh, yeah, YouTube channel would be great. Uh, or if someone wants to send me an email, uh, it's uh, Griffiths, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H-S-C-R-E at gmail.com. Uh, I, I try to respond to every email that I can. Uh, and I've even uh, had video calls with uh, with few dozen people over the last uh, several months as well. So uh, if someone has a question, they want to, to reach out, I, I try to be as, as uh, uh, generous with my time as I can, because uh, I, I had a few people when I first started in this business that took the extra time to explain it to me. So I would, I'd really like to be that resource for whoever wants to, uh, to listen to me uh, drone on about industrial real estate. That's awesome, man. Well, Chad, thanks for being here. If you are watching live on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe and join us Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. We're coming at you with these interviews or sometimes uh, Andy and I are just kind of jumping on and talking about anything commercial real estate. If you're on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can keep bringing this awesome commercial real estate content to you guys. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Tyler.